Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor who started out as a very successful leader of orchestras and then transitioned into one of the leaders of the historically informed performance movement. Over a long and distinguished career, he conducted all over the world, but is probably best known for being the founder of the Brandenburg Consort and being principal conductor of the Hanover Band. It's a great pleasure to welcome Roy Goodman. Roy, how lovely to see you and to meet you and to speak with you today. How are you? Well, it's great for me. I'm very well and nice to be your guest. Well, what a pleasure it is. Um, I know, uh, because I think you've listened at least to Sir Roger Norrington, episode 100, that you've listened <laughs> yes. to a few, a few episodes, um, that I will go right back to the beginning. And two instruments feature greatly in your life, the keyboard, organ or piano, and the violin. And I'm not sure I know which came first and why. And whether you come from musical backgrounds, tell me about your musical upbringing. I was... I suppose lucky. Uh, it was just very nice for me. Both my parents were professional musicians. Uh, my mum lived. Mum lived in Melton Mowbray, where her father was a doctor, mm. and the parish church organist there um, for ten years was a young man called Malcolm Sargent. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's rather rather unusual, isn't it? Yeah. So, of course, later Sir Malcolm Sargent, and um, yeah, I, my mum was born um, in his last year as organist there. So you know, she, she he was made her godfather. Right, and so my, as I say, in my mum's uh, doctor's father, you know, the doctor's house, as it were, they had soirees, musical soirees, and, and I think that you know, they, they, he was all part of that. Um, so yeah, he he was a lifelong family kind of uncle, if you know what I mean. I mm -hmm. met him several times at the Albert Hall, and, and a sort of hero of mine. And actually, just linked with that, he he um, in 1966. I'd just jump on just for one minute. Um, that's the year before he died. Um, I cycled from Hull to London for what turned out to be his final prom season. Um, and actually, to my great surprise, in his last night's speech, which I thought he was bloody good at doing, really yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, unequalled, um, he actually named me, you know, because he always used to say we've had people this year from all over the world, you know, had people from Timbuktu and, and New Zealand and bloody blah, blah. We even had a, a young boy cycle all the way from Hull down to the prom. <laughs> of course, the, prom, the proms all laughed. Yes. I got this recorded on radio and it was his very last speech. Anyway, I was born in Guildford, uh, it was 1951, and just the following year we moved um, to Hull, to our long-term family home, which was in Hull. I was the third of four kids, um, so I had two older sisters and a younger brother, and um, so the sisters, of course, started off before me. My oldest sister played the cello, she was great, she got into the BBC Symphony. Oh, wow. Uh, had a distinguished career. Um, the, my other sister was a clarinetist, a Thea King pupil, and... and um, uh, well, she was the, she had quite a few children, and um, so her career didn't work out in quite the same sort of way. But but she still leads, I think, a, a, a wind band or something in Hertfordshire where she lives. So she's been a, you know a semi pro or whatever clarinetist yeah. all of her. Um, and my younger brother uh, left college, and um, uh, he became the principal horn in the RAF Central Band. So a different kind of music, but a, but yeah. a, a good good position, which was great. So all six of us. Um, had been or went went to the uh, the Royal College of Music in London and got our performers ARCM. In fact, we even made up a, a family sextet, <laughs> so it's quite nice because even though my, my dad was an organist, um, 
uh, he, he could put the, relinquish the organ and, and play second fiddle, yeah. <laughs> and uh, which was very kind of him, of course. I, I, I thought that very nicely. But but what we were two years apart, so I guess let's say when we were something like forty, well, all teenagers anyway, 13, 15, 17, 19, something like that, um, we could form a string quartet, clarinet and horn, oh. and that even unlikely but it's actually a very nice combination there's a, a lovely sextet by john ireland which was our party piece yeah. and we had a couple of pieces written for us uh, john hedges who was a, a lecturer at hull university he wrote a anthony hedges excuse me um lecturer at hull university and he, he wrote a piece for us and we played a, a few church concerts or, or or marquee concerts in in big country houses or whatever you know for friends uh, which which was all very nice of course we rowed all the time, so rehearsing was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> rehearsing like every, was like every chamber group does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because the, the, there wasn't really any, as it were, boss, but it, but, and of course we could do the Mozart clarinet quintets, which we did, uh, and that was, that was a lot of fun, because Jenny, my clarinet sister, was, was really super. Um, so my mum had previously played um, with, uh, well, she played, she was a professional viola player. She played with the Boyd Neal Orchestra for a time in London. Oh, um, that's a that's a famous name from the past, Boyd Neal. It, it's great. I yeah. I had a chance to meet him in uh, in Canada once when I was working there because that's where he moved to, and he was one of the pioneers. Really, I think his his orchestra um, started off a lot of the sort of good chamber orchestra playing that we they inherited yeah. through the various ensembles. But but he was quite a pioneer in those days, and I think very enlightened man. So so th that was a great experience for her. Uh, and she was basically a violin and viola peripatetic teacher in Hull. Uh, my dad was the organist there. He was organist at Holy Trinity Church. And he was also the city organist um, in the city hall. So there's an enormous multi-purpose organ in, the, in Hull City Hall, uh, which he sort of sat me at when I was about seven or something. And I hardly reached the pedals, but, but uh, he went off and went shopping and just let, literally left me there. And I, it was like I was a, let loose in a sweet shop or something, you know. It was just it's, a a, it's a really nice hall. Um, I've conducted in there a couple of times, and it's a really nice hall. Yeah, and the Hull Phil, you know, is a good organisation. The, the only it's one of those halls when it's completely packed. There's not much acoustic left. Mm, true. Yeah. That's that always a bit sad because it, when it's empty and it's got a kind of dancing floor, it's got wood, you know, wooden floor. Um, but when it's empty, it, it, it's terrific. But uh, yeah, so that's one little motivation. So my dad was organist at both of those places. And he was also head of music of the high school in Hull, Kingston High School. So they, they were both teachers. I mean, my mum was a really great teacher. She, she dedicated herself to particularly the, as it were, the poorer elements in Hull, you know, with the, which there yeah. were a lot down near the docks and everything else. And, and she would give her time for, for their money and, and help out when, when in things or what have you. Um, it's sort of surprising, just looking back on it, that they never involved themselves in teaching us kids. <laughs> Um, so, no, I mean, not at all. They didn't, you know, they didn't supervise practice or, you know, they didn't have any involvement at all with our progress, which was, with hindsight, I think was a really good thing because it meant there was never any conflict. There was never any, any, you know, so we, it simply didn't crop up. Basically, they simply arranged for us to have lessons with really good local teachers, you know, yeah. and, and um, who, who, who were generally, very, you know, friendly and, and very receptive to us. And so I suppose when I was about five, um, I went down the road to have piano lessons um, from, from a friend. Um, she was super. She was very sweet, very gentle, if you know what I mean. And, but she helped me a lot with, with just reading music, general yeah. rudiment stuff, which was great. And not long after, maybe even only six months later, I, I started the violin with a, with, again with a, with a friend on, on an adjoining street. And, and, and that was great. So 
very happy progress with those. I was, I mean, probably like so many people, I wasn't very good at doing my practice and everything else, but, um, <laughs> but perhaps it might have been a good thing if my parents had just sort of got a bit more, um, you know, got up my backside sort of thing to just get me off my backside. To sort of, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, you know, I remember my daughter wanting to learn an instrument and she had lessons, violin lessons to begin with. And my wife saying to me, well, you should teach her. And I said, no, definitely not. I don't want there to be a conflict. And I, I, other than one person I, I worked with, virtually all of my professional friends in the CBSO, their kids either didn't play the instrument that they played and played something else, or they sought lessons with somebody else and not taught by their mum or dad so that there wasn't this conflict. Um, yes. And there has to be a line drawn in the sand um, between the teacher and the, you know, it's very easy for a child to, to start emotionally blackmailing you and vice versa the other way parents are, yeah. as you've just said <laughs> about practicing um so i don't think it's a bad thing at all no. frankly i mean my violin teacher was the leader of the whole film and i'm sure she will have told my mum if she thought i wasn't doing enough yeah, work yeah but, you know but that was great anyway um a couple of years later when i was seven uh my mum one day just said uh, we were going to get a train journey to a place called cambridge and i was going to be um having, well, not having to, but, but did, uh, I'd be asked to sing something, sing a little song yeah. or something, you know, and do a few tests, um, which, you know, was just bolt out of the blue, but I wasn't the slightest bit worried about it, of course. Uh, you know, no idea what to expect. And um, we arrived and, and I did my little tests and what have you and sang a little bit. I actually think I sang, sang once in Royal David City, which is quite funny because <laughs> it was going to be a tune I might sing on the radio quite a few years later. <laughs> but, but this was to be a chorister at King's College, Cambridge. And um, the uh, I think my my academic little tests didn't go very well, but I, but David Wilcox seemed to like my voice, and mm -hmm. um, both my parents had actually been at Cambridge University. My dad at Keys College, as Auburn School, and my mum at Girton. That's where they met, and and so they were would you know I think they were you know angling for me to get for, get a place, and fortunately because of David Wilcox um, liking my voice. Um, I got in uh, and, you know, full scholarship. So it's basically free. I mean, free mm -hmm. education, everything else. And went there uh, the following year in 1959. Um, and, yeah, I was there till 1965. Uh, it was just absolutely fantastic. So many, actually, there are certain things I do remember vividly, which, which is, I was, a, you, you, in the choir, you're a probationer for a, for, for a year. Mm -hmm. you know, in other words, you're not really a full member of the choir for about a year. And, um, but uh, unless someone's sick and right. th there was a boy who was sick um, and a couple of things resulted from that, that I had to stand in his shoes. The first thing was that only a few months after me arriving there uh, at all, um, we had to sing for uh, Boris Ord, who was the uh, director of music before David Wilcox. So he, he, you know, passed the mantle as it were, but he was still around. He was given an honorary doctorate and we had to go and sing in the Senate house in Cambridge for his honorary doctorate. Now, the reason that was significant was because every single word of it was in Latin. <laughs> I thought my parents had sent me abroad or something. Because <laughs> obviously I didn't, didn't understand a single word. Of it. <laughs> no. But it was, it was, yeah, I mean, even the, uh, the, what, the address, you know, was in Latin. I mean, there, were, there wasn't a word of English spoken at all. So it was, it wow. was most, but I was just supposed to to follow the other boys and just do whatever they did I had to do as well and um but I do remember of course that we we sang a lot of music in Latin 
So, yeah. so that was an introduction, which which was kind of unexpected. And I also remember very clearly certain a, a few pieces because we sang a lot of the same repertoire each year. You know, pieces would come round again. Yeah. Um, and there were two pieces in particular which I found. Well, actually, there were three. Uh, I suppose the first, which was the other reason I had to join the choir singing when I was still a probationer, was a recording of the Bach St John Passion, and. This was just weird. I mean, you know, this was, I was way out of my depth with it. You know, I mean, it was, I found it, I, I can't say I found it rewarding. I found it incredibly difficult. I mean, I yeah. struggled to pitch the notes and, and get, get to, obviously, you, you learn very quickly just not to do anything wrong. So if, yes. you, have, if you didn't know what to do, just don't do anything, you know. Mm. So, so that <laughs> red light, you know, but, but, um, but that, that was one piece. But there, there, were, there were two others that stuck in my brain. One was um, a lovely four-part mass by William Byrd, the English composer. And, well, and also another piece, which is by Palestrina, the Starbuck Martyr, again in Latin. And I, all I can, the reason that it's important to me is this, because I can remember about three times in my childhood as a chorister. The first, as it were, being not being able to understand this music. Yes. And then yeah. the second time, maybe a year or so later, singing it again and, and thinking, I think there's something to this. And then perhaps three or four years in, when, when they came round again, these pieces, I remember vividly then thinking, this is just a magnificent, I mean, it's just fantastic music. And the sort of appoggiatura notes and everything else that sigh at you and, and, and the dissonances in the palestrina and in, in the harmony, those things really affected me. Mm. And that kind of the, the catalyst, as it were, for, for, for for a passion, you know, uh, yeah, in, yeah. in my spirit, um, for what the, for the power of music. I mean, just to yeah. do how extraordinary it is. And it's funny that this happened to me. I was probably, you know, let's say, eleven or twelve or something when when I really noticed this. There is, of course. One, having done my homework, as my dear listeners know that I do, there is, of course, one recording of you that's still very much available to listen to, <laughs> of you singing as a choir boy, uh, the Allegri Miserere. Um, I know you mentioned, you know, singing once in Royal David City, probably on the radio, but that's the one that stands out, isn't it? How did that come around, and, and what do you remember of that? Uh, I thought you weren't going to mention it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, actually, yes, uh, this would have been in 1963 when we actually made the LP of, for, it was actually an even song of Ash Wednesday and the, right. the, the Miserere was sung at the very end, would have been and was with us, sung at the very end of the service in candlelight and everything else, very extraordinary atmosphere. And is famous really because that it rises up to a high C, mm. uh, which is, you know, stratospheric, but even though I could get to the F above that, actually the queen of the night sort of level, I could get, <laughs> get there as a boy, that till I was about 15. But um, yeah, I, obviously I'd heard that we'd done the piece on each Ash Wednesday. Yes. Um, and so 63, I started in 59. So, I mean, I, it'd been probably three years before I sang it Yeah. when, when the choir had sung it. So I, I knew what to expect and, and what it was. And in fact, I, you know, we, we never, we, we were never coached in these things at all. I mean, it was just assumed, you know, as it were, that we knew that music we had to do and it was really a funny story which is completely true I wrote it for the sleeve notes of the when it was transferred to CD and in fact they they made a little EP of it which was nice I mean they right. put my, my picture on the front but my dad refused a bit like Ernest Luff over <laughs> the wings over the wings of a dove that he recorded with the temple church choir and so on but um 
in a way, I'm a little bit sad that didn't happen. But um, we, we had a rugby match that day. Uh, <laughs> I loved, loved rugby. I mean, actually, one of the joys of being at the choir school was sport. Because yeah. we, we did sport every afternoon. Um, and obviously, it was intravenous music, you know. I mean, you just did because all the time so we started with a very early choir practice and we sang for services six days a week and that kind of thing so it was just amazing but the sport was great and um yeah it was quite natural just to run into a rugby match fortunately we wore long trousers because i had grubby knees muddy <laughs> knees at that day miss aiken i remember she, the matron she was she was um uh, yeah, scolding me for you know, but there wasn't time you know I had to, we had yeah. to run on but I was we were I was late with one of the other boys and we sort of ran in and they were already warming up and sort of singing I mean the the, the, the session had sort of started which seems very strange to me now but it didn't seem at all strange at the time I mean we just had to be a few minutes late and apologized and took our places and um, they they Wilcox was sort of going down the line with a few boys singing so I mean, it wasn't a, a pre-planned thing that it was Roy was going to do the solo, yeah. as I was, was, was going to sing the solo. Um, and um, he, David sort of just calmly said, um, you know, well, Roy, you have, you, you have a go and you're not tired little go. And, and he said, right, well, come and stand here, you know, and, and let's, let's, let's take this. And so we did. And, and so it went and it was all very natural and easy. And we, I think the, the, um, the David Wilcox assured me, I, I, not that I needed assuring, but it was quite interesting that we just did complete takes. We did about three complete takes and, and yeah. then the recording is actually one complete take because he, he, he thought, we, you know, it was absolutely fine and lovely. And I suppose I've wind and dine on it quite a lot ever since then. <laughs> I, mean, I think in a way my kids, sort of resented the fact I'm, I'm like a, a one 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 hit wonder you know kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that that's true at all my kids don't know about the rest of the story but yeah but 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 um but i but yes eventually i i i became very proud of it i mean i was yeah. a bit embarrassed i think as you are as a kid um about being well known for something as it were you don't want to stick out from the crowd but 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 later on i've very much appreciated it and not least how much pleasure it's given people um, i had a, a student on teaching practice once um quite a lot of years later and he almost you know wanted to wash my feet and sort of because they, they they used to listen to the, listen to this as part of a seance club that he belonged to and, and they <laughs> put this and, and when he realized it was me you know he'd actually met this, this I was working underneath this person so oh, it, dear. but anyway it was yeah, that was that was that was really wonderful um uh, I had the, the other I guess um, I, I did while I was a chorister um I I, I did also enjoy um, well, we had a, a, a very vivacious uh, teacher called Elizabeth Spurrell, Liz Spurrell, and she taught me there both the violin and the, 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 the piano. Mm. Uh, she was a multi, you know, multi-talented uh, lady, which was absolutely great and, and very encouraging over all sorts of stuff. And I did conduct. We had a, a, a senior oh, orchestra, cool. and a junior orchestra. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a real opportunity because I mean, I, I got my had my hands on a baton, you know, and, yes. and really was. And I used to, so I did have a baton. And I did conduct privately. I used to hide away in one of the music rooms with, where there was a little LP player. And I had an old LP, an Ace of Clubs thing of, of I think it was Ruggiero Ricci playing the Beethoven violin concerto. Mm. And that, that was my piece. I mean, that I made it my piece and, and this recording. And I would, when I, when I needed to, you know, when you have moments of, I don't know, being sad or needing to, to do something, bring something out of yourself, I, I would hide away and, and put, this, put this LP on. 
and and secretly sort of conduct and <laughs> do it, which seems seems silly now, but it brought me a lot of pleasure. And so it was just nice. I suppose I'm trying to imitate my mother's godfather, you know, some Malcolm Sanders. Yeah. So I tried to bring that out. I suspect um, we all start in a similar way, it's in conducting along to a record or in our car or whatever, until somebody thinks you think, well, maybe I ought to try it, but. Yeah, I, yeah, it's. I think well, there's nothing for any of us to, to be ashamed about conducting along to records when we're young. No, but I was. I I did enjoy playing even in the junior orchestra, and that was something that was going to be important to me later in life. And and uh, 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 when my time sort of came to, towards an end at King's, um, I got. I, I I did actually pass a full scholarship to go to King's School, Canterbury, and my dad took me down there. I know he wanted me to go there, um, and they were they were. Yes, proud of the fact that they had three orchestras at the school. Mm. And actually, I think quite a lot of um, it was quite a good um, breeding ground, if you like, for conductors and what have you at King's School, Canterbury. Yeah, I've interviewed <laughs> a few on here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, it was a very musical school. But I knew that being a chorister had not been exactly normal. And, and, and I had an overriding desire to go back where my two sisters and brother were back home, because that's where mm. they were in Hull, um, and be, as it were, what I thought might be normal. This was very strange at King's because um, I was the, the only boy in the school, not just in the choir, but in the school, 120 kids or whatever, um, to go to a state school uh, mm. when they left. And the headmaster was not entirely happy about that, obviously. He wanted me to go to public school and where, you know, he knew my dad wanted, was on his side, as it were, and, and sort of, you know, told me that, you know, he didn't ever want me to come back and, and regret the decision I was making. But fortunately, I was, I was allowed to be a big part of the decision. And Good. that would have changed my life because I would have had to have signed at King's Canterbury to stay on till I was 18. Um, and as it turned out, uh, I, I left secondary education when I was 17 to go to the Royal College of Music. Um, and I know that um, if I'd gone to King's Canterbury, that I would have gone on to university. And I think yeah. I think my, my uh, in other words, not musically. And I, I think my whole life could, could have been very different. Mm. Uh, but also it's quite a nice nice thing that um, when I got back to Hull um, I could play in three orchestras that's what Canterbury was boasting Canterbury said you know, <laughs> we've got three orchestras you can play in. and I said well look you know um, I've got three in Yorkshire so it was the Hull Youth Orchestra the East Riding of Yorkshire Youth Orchestra which was fantastic I mean that mm. was not you know not a million miles off the wasn't as regimented but like the National Youth Orchestra which I also did play in yeah um, and the Hull Junior Philharmonic. So there, there were there were three of those. And yes, I mentioned the NYO. Um, I got in for a year or two with them, and I remember playing under Rudolf Schwarz. Oh, um, a, a, a name from CBSO past. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, he, I, he I was had, told all about him um, by my older colleagues. The, the, a disability of some sort, but but so it, it was, well, it wasn't a disability, Roy. He was uh, he was tortured and brutally treated by the Nazis, oh, um, and uh, I think because he was a very good pianist. But what I'd heard was that his they'd they'd broken his arms or uh, or affected his shoulders so that he conducted in this particularly. Oh, you remember this way? Almost like he was cradling a baby in front of yes. him. I was told with one one up these arms crossed. I mean, this and, may sound strange, but I mean, it was actually endearing because you mm. know you you sort of felt for him very much. And uh, I remember the repertoire we did. We did Shostakovich ten. Um, we did uh, the Bartok Concerto Orchestra, yeah. and I, I, of course, I thought both of those pieces were just amazing. You know, mm. just absolutely amazing, which was great. So we did those a, a, a bit on tour. 
Um, so, but back at school, at Hull Grammar School, there was something very unusual, and that was that there was no music teacher. And this was, of course, a bit odd because my dad was the head of music at Kingston High School, which was the sort of rival secondary school. Right. But then, uh, for better or worse, I, I, I'd been accepted at the grammar school, which is what I wanted to do. And I think in a funny way, although we never ever discussed it, and I've only thought of it quite recently that it was odd, I didn't go to the school that my dad was teaching at. Yeah. It's probably a good thing that I didn't. It was probably very much his idea that, you know, I should be at the other school. Yes. But my dad negotiated, I was there, it was quite odd being in the headmaster's room, um, that and I would have to teach myself music because I, I was <laughs> going to have to do O-level music, you know, and, uh, and, yeah. and A-level music, which is what I did. Um, and therefore, I should be let off a couple of subjects, which I think were geography and science, which I sort of regret. So I never did bumps and burners, and I never did <laughs> never did field trips, you know. With geography <laughs> and all kind of, um, so unfortunately, I mean, it does seem a bit mad now. But anyway, it meant I, I could use that time to prepare for assembly because we had assembly every morning at school, and um, I was asked, I think, I don't think it was my idea, but anyway, to, to prepare 10 minutes or so of music, um, which I, on an LP, which I, I put on in the hall, on, on the LP player in the hall, um, and choose a hymn play, and play the grand piano to accompany it. Every so, you know, this is starting at, what, 14, 15, 15, something like that. I was in charge of doing those things, a great responsibility. Um, and in a way, it was it was terrific. Um, yeah. It was it was perhaps a little bit more difficult for me when I became a teacher later on that that I hadn't had proper music lessons from a teacher, so I, I hadn't been through the system myself, as it were. Yes. But it, it made me very independent, and um, yeah, so that was an unusual thing. I and mean, we we, I I got my um, um, got my music A level in one year. I took it one year early. My music A level. So again, I persuaded. This is really unusual. Um, to cut short my time at school. So only leaving after the lower sixth. Yeah. And to go, I got a place at the Royal College of Music and I discovered in advance, I'd done my homework, that I could do the external Durham BMUS course um, with just one A-level. Right. Um, so I was thrilled to bits. So, so I went there when I was 17 to the RCM. Um, I managed to, well, other odd things. During the BMAS course, you were not allowed, this is ridiculous, to play in the in the RCM orchestra. Isn't that <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 sounds, it's mad. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds counterintuitive somehow. Yeah. But even though orchestras were going to be my life, yes. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I was I was sort of banned from it. And I managed to squeeze all my classes into about two days. And yeah. actually I, I went back. So I said Malcolm Sargent was the August at Melton Mowbray. My my mother's mother my grandmother lived there still and basically i arranged it so i could spend uh, five days a week uh, free of charge yeah. in her place there and uh, two days a week with all my all my classes and everything else at the college nice i was there for two years so i got through my um, my bmas course from durham i got my arco um i thought because my parents were teachers i thought the most likely thing was that i was going to have to teach at some stage in my life yes. and I knew because my mum rather late in life but she'd been forced to do something that wasn't necessary at the beginning of her career and that was to take a kind of dip ed or certificate of education or something because they changed the, the rules and regulations I knew I should take something so I so I was going to do a, a one-year um, teacher's training course uh, which I did in Reading and in fact I settled in Reading for about 30 odd years um, but the problem was this my ARCO 
was not accepted as a, a, a high enough diploma for my course. So at the very last minute, I, I discovered that I was going to have to get my FRCO, which is a really tough exam. I mean, you have a three hour fugue paper, you have to do sight reading in four different clefs. So treble and bass clef, but two different C clefs in the middle. I mean, nightmare. I mean, that was one thing I did actually practice all so, of my life. I mean, so for the, the listeners who are not uh, UK based, an FRCO is the fellowship or a fellow of the Royal College of Organists. And, Correct. And those of you even in the UK who don't visit London, the Royal College of Organists is is a hop, skip and a jump from the Royal College of Music. It's just up the stairs towards the, <laughs> the Albert Hall. Uh, it's not just far at all. So you, you can you know, do be in both buildings within a couple of minutes of each other. Well, I only found out I had to pass that exam at short notice. And um, yeah. this is now 1970. I had a really extraordinary 1970. Um, in that one year, um, I got my FRCO, which was great. Uh, I was invited by Peter Fletcher, who'd been the East Riding of Youth Orchestra uh, music advisor, or what have you, but he was now in charge of the LSSO, the London Schools Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. And he invited me to play for a week of carol concerts in the Royal Festival Hall. And actually, uh, likewise, I played, I think, for the Pines of Rome in Maidervale Studios. I played the organ part in Respighi's Pines of Rome. Wow. With, with the London Schools Symphony Orchestra, as it were, but in Maidervale Studios. That was fun. I was invited by um, my dad's... Uh, organ teacher so George Thornborn Australian August he was on tour in Australia went off for a month and uh, four students from the college were invited to um, to take a, a week each so I did, I did one of those which was nice I also played the Mendelssohn violin concerto <laughs> soloist <laughs> um, so this is still 1970 I, with the South Buckinghamshire Chamber Orchestra um, and I got married <laughs> wow all of that happened in 1970 and my marriage was 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 great because I had, um, as my best man, I had Richard Hickox. Oh. Now, he'd become a great friend because while I was yeah. at the, R, the, the Royal College, um, he was an uh, organ scholar at Queen's College in Cambridge, and he was conductor at the Arts Theatre in Cambridge of the GNS Society, Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. And there was a postcard up in the, in, the, in the Royal College I saw one day asking, they were looking for a leader yeah. uh, of this. This, this orchestra, but just for the season, you know, for the Gilbert Sullivan scene. And actually for two years, I think I did I did the full season with Richard Hickox in the Arts and that's where we first met. And it turned out that his girlfriend and my then girlfriend, um, they were both at school together in High Wycombe, which is close to where Richard Hickox used to live. And he had a festival there in Woolburn and, and so on. So before he started his own orchestra, but it was the City of London Symphonia he had as well. And I, play, I played with them. But because of that, tie up with my girlfriend being his girlfriend's best friend and mm. um, uh, uh, he was an obvious person to choose for my as my best man um, and um, yeah um, happy days <laughs> I'm going to jump to what you're best known for and find out whether the RCM had anything to do with it. Um, and I know, uh, you know, very soon you become a teacher for eight years in, in Reading. But let's talk about HIP, because at some point you will have got very into HIP. And for those reminding, uh, who need reminding on the podcast, historically informed performance. Not a term that some of the people involved in HIP like, but it's a sort of catch-all umbrella term. When did you become interested in it and why? Um, and this is long before you find you started the Brandenburg Consort. But yeah, I'm just interested when it first popped into your head. 
Right. Well, it was exactly at this kind of time. Mm. So we've just been talking 1970 uh, when I left the Royal, Royal College of Music. During my time there, I was in touch with several friends who were students in Amsterdam and in Vienna. Yes. Uh, and because there were there were a few hubs that were sort of starting, there were about four places where you could get the only four places really. Uh, one was in Basel. Uh, August Wenzinger was there. One was in uh, Vienna with uh, Niklas Harnenkor, who was yes, there with Swine Alice. One was in um, Amsterdam with Gustav Leonhardt, and one was in The Hague with Zigizal Kauken. Mm. And that was just about the limit of it in the world. I mean, of, of, of really top professional people who were offering some teaching. And that was only beginning in, I was going to say, the, the late 60s. I mean, you know, 67, uh. 69. So around about the time I was just about to leave college myself. And I was in touch with some of these people. And, you know, we were sort of commiserating because we were all beginning to get a, a bit excited about it from the LPs that we were yeah. able to hear. This was the main thing. And it was actually in 1970 that Harlan Kaur's first recording of the St. Matthew Passion came out. And I, I bought it, I was an avid collector. In fact, I have every single thing that Harlan Kaur's ever recorded. He right. made a whole series of um, very early LPs with his Concentus Music in Vienna from throughout the 60s. And I have all of those on LP. And I have every single modern digital recording he's made. And he recorded the St. Matthew Passion again 30 years later. But I also had on my shelf of, of LPs, I had um, Otto Klemperer doing the Bach St. Matthew Passion. Mm, and it was yeah. really, really strange because when I looked at the timing of the first chorus between the two, Harnacle was twice, the double the speed, you know, so he, did, yeah, he, yeah. he did it uh, twice as fast. Yeah. And I was so excited. I mean, this just seemed just like devastating. It was just amazing. And it made sense. Mm. And it's funny, I put them on just for fun because um, they, crop up occasionally but 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 I, I did put them on to compare recently and, and there's the, 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 not the shock but the delight is still is still there um now that carried on of course while I was doing my initial teaching years and so on I kept on listening to this this stuff and um I it it was particularly 17th century consort music that really excited yes. me with so Zygisvart Koiken was was playing Muffat and Schmelzer and Beaver and Corelli, of course, um, um, but it was all fairly early. It was it was tending to be no late. I mean, Bach was still a little bit late. You know, it was a, possibly a bit of Handel or something. But but you know, yeah. it, Bach was too difficult, basically. Um, at least that's what I thought. Um, uh, but I mean, you know, to do something like the Brandenburg Jazz or something was beyond. I think the, the, the we would because there were so few teachers and there were very yes. few people even learning. Um, it was a very, very new thing. And I was really excited to be part of this kind of movement, the beginning of it all. So there were people, of course, in, in, in Tom Koopman in Holland, uh, Trevor Pinnock in, in, in London, as, as well as um, Leonhardt and, and, and Hanukkah, as I said. Um, and I, I, I queried with my friends why we couldn't put together a group, you know, to sort of make up a group. And you mentioned my Brandenburg Consort, which I started in 1975. So, you know, not much later. Um, it was still impossible, really. I mean, I could only get together a string quintet and oboes and flutes and things on modern instruments. Yes. Um, but very quickly it changed. By 1977, just two years later, I got my first baroque fiddle. And hey, presto, um, two things sort of happened, really. One was... Um, well, the, the, 
possibly the most important thing of all was that the idea of hip got adopted by some of the record companies and yes. we needed people to pay for this stuff and there had been various um radio stations who were helping with this in fact the bbc were absolutely fantastic they had one or two producers i remember um anthony burton was one and nicholas anderson was another they, they were real as it were entrepreneurs in you, well you had to ring them and, and see if they could come to your concert and they would have a listen and then you got onto an approved list yeah and then you know as happened with me you know i made i don't know 40 or 50 radio programs of purcell and you know all sorts of stuff and um, the, the other thing was record companies so christopher hogwood who had already made some uh, early um uh, lp lps as they were then with his his with his academy of ancient music Mm. He got an amazing contract with Decca, with a, a label called Loiselier, and it was a producer. It was very often just one producer. Um, like, for example, for Roger Norrington, it was David Murray for EMI. Yes, I mean, yes. An astonishing guy who did things. Um, and um, for uh, uh, Trevor Pinnock had his, his colleagues at Deutsche Grammophon, and for Christopher Hogwood, it was Peter Wadland for this uh, Loiselier label. And lo and behold, he got a contract to record the complete Mozart symphonies. Mm. And I can warn you that that meant 65 pieces they ended up recording, not the 41 symphonies, but 65 yeah. pieces all together over about seven years. And um, suddenly that meant there was an income, you know, there was money available for doing this. I mean, that was the catalyst, really. I think the beginning of the Mozart symphonies. We, I mean, it was unbelievable work that, that we were able to get. Yeah. And um, as I say, I could then start, you know, change my players in my group and then have that. Uh, 1979, so that's just jumping on a few years, I was a founder member of, of uh, Tom Copeman's Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra, mm. and there'd been all sorts of um, strange mixing of the groups with the different companies and what have you. Um, uh, it was all a bit convoluted and, and awkward, but things settled over a few years, and, and, uh, and it was absolutely wonderful. I was a regular member with, with Trevor Pinnock of the English Concert, and with Tom Copeman of his Amsterdam Orchestra, and actually it was very nice that we did a nice mix of them both because actually you can get you know you can have overdose and have too much of, of any one <laughs> thing it nice, yeah. but it was all it was a small group of the same players we'd see each other in different groups all the time and we of course the the the, the repertoire extended so in tom copeman yes. said he would never record anything later than 1791 which is mozart's death date yeah. well of course he broke that you know in 10 years he, he you know <laughs> and, and so did everybody else and gradually the repertoire has moved on chronologically um, which does make sense, and people's technique. I mean, as, as soon as we could play Corelli well, then Handel and Bach became easier. As soon as we could play Bach, there was the chance of playing Haydn and Mozart. As soon as we could play Haydn and Mozart well, there was a chance of playing Beethoven. Then yes. there was Berlioz, Wagner, you know, I mean, yeah. then Elgar, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, the hip thing goes right the way through all of that because we've, we've learned so much, and people, um, you know, have, have started to respect composers wishes the way yes. that they used to play and there's a, an absolute wealth as there was of course available you know before all this started but the books that tell us how they played all of the teaching books particularly by Gemini Arni, Leopold Mozart, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, Quantz yeah. um, there, there's an astonishing simple range of books with a lot of which were translated into English um, and, 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 and wonderful pedagogues like Hanukkah um, you know who who, who were very generous with sharing their information and, and their source material and everything else and, and, and encouraging people to play and something. And yeah, which was, which was just fantastic. So 
the, the hip thing um, just completely infected me, you know, and, and, <laughs> and it's in a way been one of the most important things I've been trying to motivate people with for my entire working life because yeah. um, it, it, it's meant more to me than anything really um, yeah. and despite all the struggles I mean we did have struggles the Academy of Ancient Music struggled with competing with the Academy of Smart in the fields you know and, and there was some bad blood for quite a lot of years and, and, and people were saying that the, the, the old instrument players weren't good enough to play you know which may have been true of course for a period of time but but eventually the standards got equivalent and high yeah. and I think myself I I I I I think I didn't realize I belittled quite a bit of the work we did and, and with hindsight now I realize that actually I mean the trailblazing stuff that Roger Norrington did and and people like Sir Charles McGarris really yes. conductors both of whom were my mentors of mine and people who I you know still respect hugely um it it, it became kosher you know it became very accepted and, and I and it was okay. The public may have been divided 50 50, but at least 50, half of them loved it. <laughs> you know, and, not exactly and, that. That's, that's very true. We, we basically never looked back. Um, no. I remember when Tom, Tom Copeman's orchestra started in 1979, we were paid 100 pounds a day. Now, that was that's a lot of money in 1979. It was like feeling yeah. a millionaire. And so um, it lined the pockets, you know, for, for, for a lot of us for a long time. And I know, um, yeah, it was, it was the, the 80s in particular was a fantastic, yeah. As we, I mentioned earlier on, you founded the Brandenburg Concert in 75, which became the Parley of Instruments um, with, with a merger with another orchestra called Ar, um, Ars Nova. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, 86 to 94, the Hanover Band, your principal conductor. I want to yeah. talk about directing because a lot of all, all of that early HIP stuff was leading from the violin. But then yeah. also you would have led from maybe from the harpsichord or from the organ or even from the piano at some point. How did you transition from being the director uh, <laughs> from the violin or the keyboard into suddenly being the man at the front? Yeah, well, of course, not everyone liked it um, because <laughs> a lot, well, a lot of the, I was going to say, brown rice and sandals club, you know, that's what we yeah. used to call them sometimes. But but anyway, the, the yes. die really diehard uh, purists. Yeah. Um, just you know, we shouldn't have a conductor. I mean, you know, they didn't have a conductor until let's say Berlioz or something, you know, but, but there, there wasn't a true conductor for Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven. Um, but yes, I, I suppose what happened was I, I became concertmaster of, of quite a lot of orchestras uh, uh, for other people. Yeah. I led the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment for, for um, well, who, who, who can I think of? Charles McKerris, um, uh, Ivan Fischer, um, Simon Rattle. I yes. Um, Glyndebourne, Figaro, and also in the Domineo at South Bank, various things. Um, and so I started moving towards the front. And then uh, with my own group, it got bigger sometimes. And, and I suppose with the Hanover Band, it, it was really where it started for me that, that um, we were recording Haydn's military symphony. Um, uh, I think it was in 1987. And um, with the, all the, the percussion and what have you, we just couldn't get the ensemble as good as we wanted. And members yeah. who recorded didn't like editing, so so we had to do it in one take. And um, 
so I, you know, at one point I remember much to everyone's chagrin, if that's the right word, but 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 they they I I picked up a, a stick, I had a stick in my, my violin case. And I and it was it all suddenly was sort of okay. The the ensemble problem sort of disappeared. So it was like a no-brainer for me. And I just yes. thought this, this is kind of the way to go. So I then became quite well known for being able to direct from the violin. And I went through a lot of the agonies that somebody like Viotti will have gone through all those years ago. Um, when he was waving a, 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 his bow and his bow arm, he, I think Viotti was known for actually annotating his violin part. He would put in wind oh, cues things yeah. so that he could actually help the wind players. And because this was really important. Um, and um, I went through all of that. And I used to do the same thing. And I, I had one... There was one particular concert, which was actually quite early on in 1981. I, I directed Beethoven Five in the Guildhall in London with the Hanover Band. And that started off the Nimbus contract that we had. And I, I was standing on a podium facing the orchestra. Wow. And I remember Anthony Halstead, who was the principal horn, fantastic player. Um, he was very complimentary to me at the end. He played under quite a few uh, violin directors in the English Chamber Orchestra, which he was principal of. And, and yeah. he just said, you know, Roy, he said, you've got it. You know, this is good. And I, I, coming from him, I, I really took that to heart. I mean, it was very, very good for my morale and everything else. And so I, I felt quite confident to carry on doing that. Now, there were times when, um, of course, you know, when we had big, bigger orchestras and so on, when, in fact, direction from a keyboard was much more sensible. Yes. Pr and pra practical is what I really mean. And um, fortunately, I was from my, uh, you know, organ playing days and everything. I, I was a co very confident keyboard player I mean I, I could never be a soloist or anything like that on the piano but but um I did then have a go at certain things on the harpsichord and found it very comfortable and very easy yeah. and I enjoyed myself a lot um and then that meant for certain repertoire things that, that it would be on the forte piano um which was good or the organ you know I'd yes. continue organ myself so those three instruments then started to feature quite a lot in my life and I I felt very comfortable doing it I mean I've, I've directed um, uh, Mozart Figaro, I've directed Handel's Orlando, um, both, you know, big scale operas uh, from, from the harpsichord or forte piano and, and, and played all the respectives and all, all that kind of stuff, which is great. Um, the thing that I've struggled with sometimes is that the information we get from musicologists doesn't always line up with what, what, what I've thought. I'll just give you one quick example of specifically of Mozart and Haydn. And yeah. um, this is to do with, with Christopher Hogwood's recording. So the Mozart symphonies, which I've already mentioned, yes. um, Chris had a guy called Neil Zaslaw as the musicologist. Right. And Neil Zaslaw was God, you know, what he said we had <laughs> to do. Yeah. And basically he, he had irreversible evidence that's irrefutable evidence or whatever. Um, that um, that there should be a harpsichord continuo in all of Mozart's symphonies. Um, well, that was wonderful. That was not normal practice everywhere, but but it, it gradually, you know, developed like that. And that is now the accepted, you know, base yes. point that you that you do have a continuo harpsichord throughout Mozart. Now, um, extraordinarily, when Christopher Hogwood started doing the complete Haydn symphonies, which a little bit like, like my Haydn series with the Hanover Band, which we we did 14 CDs for Hyperion of, and it ran out of money. Chris Hogwarts also ran out of money. So very sadly, neither of those full um, sets um, got completed. But um, it, he then had a, Chris Hogwood had, had instead of Neil Zaslaw, he had James Webster, another professor, American, um, uh, as the, the, the god figure. <laughs> 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 yeah. the, the, the oracle. Yeah. <laughs> the oracle, yes. 
and, and uh, he basically said that Haydn did not have um, harpsichord or uh, keyboard continuo in, in his symphonies. But he, I, I, I mean, I've gone through all his arguments and they just don't hold any water to me. Yeah, yeah. But, but unfortunately, um, the, 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 the world at large and the critics and everyone else thought that he was absolutely right. And I haven't yet had a chance to fully present my case. I did do a little symposium in Oxford for um, Andrew Parrott a few years ago when I sort of laid my case out, but I haven't managed to put it in print yet and I hope I will one day. Huh. But it, it struck me as very odd because we absolutely know the history of um, Haydn directing from a lovely Broadwood piano for all of his London symphonies. Mm. So, you know, um, this is this is in the, in the late 1790s or what have you, um, this is what happened. Now, I've got a lovely book uh, uh, about the Broadwood Piano Company, and they list from their accounts the days when the horse and carriage was booked to take the 40 piano to the Hanover Square Room. <laughs> wow. And they, they coincide exactly with yeah. all the known first performances of Haydn's London symphonies. Yes. And so we know that's absolutely for sure. Now, they're, they're, one of James Webster's arguments is that there are no figures in the bass part. Well, look, for God's sake, Haydn is playing. He, he wouldn't need <laughs> exactly. figures yeah. in he order would. to play. He wrote the bloody thing. <laughs> That's exactly what I've said many times. Yeah. Um, there are many other arguments like that that really are a little bit silly. Um, there is just one place in Symphony Number no. 98, near the very end of the final movement, where there are some arpeggios. 98 is a symphony in B-flat, where there are, where there are B-flat arpeggios written in a high tessitura for the piano part. Now, to my absolute astonishment, even somebody like Nicolas Harnoncourt, when he recorded them with the uh, Concertgebouw Orchestra, he made mm. a lovely complete cycle of, of um, the London symphonies, as did Colin Davis also with the Concertgebouw. Um, but Harnoncourt used, Colin Davis used a harpsichord just for those arpeggios. And Harnoncourt, for some reason, had a model D Steinway tucked away at the back of the orchestra, which doesn't play a single note except for those arpeggios, those bits, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Yes. So far, to my knowledge, there's only one complete set of the Haydn London symphonies, which has a forte piano playing throughout, uh, as it should, uh, yeah. which is Roger Norrington, but it's with his uh, Stuttgart Symphony Orchestra, Radio Symphony Orchestra. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I got in touch with the, his lady who played played it, and we've had long, long discussions about it. It's slightly distantly balanced, and it was absolutely not a Broadwood. I remember Rogers telling me, how on earth are we going to get a, a Broadwood piano, 1799 Broadwood piano in Stuttgart, he said, yeah. which is fair enough. Um, but um, Christopher Holwood did record, I think, one or two of the London symphonies from a Broadwood uh, 40 piano, and I have done exactly the same. Yeah. And it's just magic as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it, the, 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 the forte piano really does work well. We know that he uses it. And I cannot understand why, um, I mean, uh, the, the, the reason, we know that the harpsichord in Esterhazy, where Haydn worked in his early years, um, was burnt. It burnt down with the opera house. Right. And, but apparently he did use the harpsichord in the opera stuff. And it's very, very odd that, um, uh, Antonini, uh, Giovanni Antonini, who, who, who's now directing a complete Haydn series um, himself at the moment, has categorically said that he is not using a, a, a piano. So I'm very curious to know what happens when he gets to the London symphonies, how that's going to work <laughs> out. But he admits that they were used in the Opera House. And it's very odd because he's, he's already recorded some music that was for the Opera House in which he does not use a keyboard. So his argument's already gone down the plug hole. But I do find a lot of the lot of it sounds like music minus one to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it can go much further. And I've had a lot of pleasure trying to convince people. I, I, I've lost the battle sometimes <laughs> along the way, but, yeah. but, I, but I'm hoping still to, uh, 
well, before I kick my clogs to, to, to put this in more in writing so that I can leave. So you should. <laughs> yeah, so you should. I mean, going on, we've, you know, your period with the Hanover Band, and now you're starting to conduct. You're working across the world. Yeah. Um, you feature quite a lot in opera and ballet, which is you know, something you probably, as you said, you played for... Uh, for Rattles Glyndebourne, but opera and ballet is a big part of your life. How much did you enjoy the, uh, well, <laughs> in the tempo change, things taking six weeks rather than six days, or even occasionally six hours? You know what the UK music scene's like. Um, how was that tempo change for you, and do, how much did you enjoy it? I found it difficult in both cases. I found both opera and ballet different, difficult in, in, in different ways. And I mean, I suppose opera in, in its basic form, opera is like accompanying a soloist, you know, so, so yes. the, the singers are your soloists and you're accompanying. So it's a bit like doing concertos, that there's a sort of connection there. Um, I suppose various starting points. One, one is language. Yes. So I'm, I'm absolute fan of Handel's operas. His, all of Handel's operas are in Italian. Mm. Um, and there are, I don't know, over 50 Italian operas by Handel, which are fantastic pieces. Now, I will freely admit that they do work incredibly. The music is so powerful and yes. the vocal li lines are, are just breathtakingly emotional and, and you know, virtuosic and, and quite extraordinary. And so I'm, I'm a real, real fan of the Handel Italian operas. Um, but they do work very well in, in, in sort of semi-staged performances. Mm. Um, Possibly, actually, for me, even better, because then the, the, everyone can be honest about the emotions they're singing uh, about. And the, mu the, the music shines. You're, you know, uh, whenever I've done or been assisted somebody in, an, uh, uh, you know, in a concert performance as an opera, you know, people say, oh, the music, you can hear the music so much better when you're not distracted by, you know, uh, and, and scenery the music and staging. Yeah. The music is simply fabulous. I mean, yeah. you know, it, yeah, yeah. it really does come on its um, so I suppose there were two things, difficulties. One was I used to go for coaching in Italian, um, mm -hmm. you know, for each, each opera, um, because I was very particular about the colour of vowel sounds uh, from the singers. I, I wanted to be able to criticise them about that. Um, uh, the problems, yes, I suppose, of, of um, I've never had an opera singer sing in front of my beat. They're always... <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, that's 100%. So... Yeah. And I, it's quite difficult sometimes to explain to them how far behind they are sometimes and, and just keep, keep them going. But that's obviously in the rehearsals, you know, you, can just, you just have to be disciplined to make it clear when things are not working and what they have to listen for and, you know, how you can make, make all that work. But the other, the other big problem for me were, was the regime, was the, was the staging. Yes. Um, and... I very rarely was lucky enough to have a, a stage director who was also a musician yeah. uh, and therefore was happy like me to put the music first and so that if anything in the staging really did contradict or get in the way, then they would change it or whatever. Unfortunately, that often didn't happen. I mean, things just were, were the way they were. And I suppose if the, the very, the very first sort of major production I did was in uh, 1992. I did, I did Scipio. Scipione in Italian in Karlsruhe, so mm. in the Stadtheater for, for the Handel Festival that they had every year. I, I was there for, for quite some time. In fact, that was the first I did. I did, did roughly 20 productions in 20 years. So, so oh, I did right. roughly one opera a year for 20 years. Oh. Um, and about two thirds of those were in, 
were there, but also I did Dropping Home, which was very wonderful. I did Stuttgart Opera uh, with repeats sometimes in Budapest and also traveling to San Francisco. So, I mean, the, I did do opera all, all, over, all over the place. But this, this production is quite interesting, the one in, uh, of, of the Scipio, because I was told about a year in advance or whatever, but that the, the, the producer was thinking of making an analogy with the, with the Gulf War, first Gulf right. War. Right. And, and, and Scipio basically could be General Schwarzkopf in, you know, in fatigue. <laughs> right. And, and, but he just said, you know, it's just a rough idea. And he goes, well, what I didn't realize was that when I arrived, it was going to be a full-scale Sheraton Hotel in Riyadh. Um, <laughs> the, the, the atrium of the hotel was the stage, a huge stage with, with, yeah. with, with, with revolve and everything else. We had two elevate glass elevators going up to, to, to the corridor with the rooms and everything else. We had, we had a snug bar. And actually, that, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I joined in the spirit of things by saying, look, let's have the harpsichord dressed up as a, as a, as a pub piano. <laughs> Put it in the bar and let them have all their conversations going on around that. And that was great because I, mean, yeah. I got involved in the rest of the team, which is a good thing. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a, there was a, a, a briefing room. There were, there were places for them doing interviews and everything else. It, it was extraordinary, but it really was the Gulf War. Yeah. And of course, there were certain things like the rushing around the hotel that they were having to do while they were singing became unmanageable. And, and yes. you know, I put down, a, which was easy because the singers, of course, complained as well. That kind of worked. And it was exciting. And, and the next year one worked as well. But there was a case, maybe I was going to say it was about 10 years later. I was in Stuttgart doing another Handel opera, um, Al, um, Alcina. Mm. And um, this Alcina is set on a magical island. The set for this, and I didn't have much discussion about it beforehand because it was a production that had already happened. So whereas the, the Tamilano one was an, a new production, it was set in a dismal dark room for the whole 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 evening. And there was there was a kind of cutout in the middle near the back that looked as though it was somewhere where a picture might have hung. And what it was that people could walk across behind the stage and you'd see their silhouette and their their outline and this this was providing a kind of subtext to the opera throughout that, that how on earth the public were meant to understand any of what was not being said in the text of the opera yes. you know with the two guys who, who were who were the stage directors they twisted everything so you know you're singing you're happy because you're sad you're singing you're sad because you're happy you're, oh. I mean, they, they twisted all the emotions around and it made it completely impossible. And mm. I'm afraid to say they, although they got really bad reviews, they got massive publicity. And it seems as though even massive bad publicity is better than no publicity. Well, that sometimes, and who, I, I'm who said that? That, I, that, that isn't that uh, Phileas T. Barnum, didn't he say that? Or somebody like, or, or um, Orson Welles, something about, you know, uh, even bad publicity is, is better was, than none. That was the case with quite a lot of the things yeah. I did. Now, but that was about 20 operas in 20 years around the world. Ballet was very different because um, I only did two years of ballet. Yeah. Um, however, in that two years, I did about 50 performances. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this was a real baptism of fire because ballet is a completely different story, really, because um, at least in the opera, in, in the, uh, generally speaking, I got good reviews for how we'd managed the music. You know, yeah. we, we at least performed the music honestly and to the best of our ability, despite the staging. Yes. But with ballet, you can't, you can't do that because, I mean, ballet is just a fixed product. Once the steps have been made, even though you have a, a, a good uh, regie um, choreographer. Um, I was actually incredibly lucky because almost all the ballets I did had been staged by uh, Georges Balanchine. Oh, well, there you are, yeah. He was a, a, a really qualified musician. And I have to say, 
it was great that that meant that generally speaking the tempi could be done really accurate you know really well yes. i mean they were they were because yeah. i'd been to the ballet a few times and watched a few things and i thought god you know you wouldn't do it like that in the concert hall and stuff no. and there is this difficulty that you know I, it's very hard for me to say to a ballet dancer that i can absolutely enjoy prokofiev's romeo and juliet in the concert hall and and i actually don't don't need the dancing well they, they would almost say the opposite i mean in fact that they have have the steps and everything else it would be fine if it's just a piano duet or something accompanying them but if for me that's just it's chalk and cheese and, and it doesn't really work the most scary thing of all yes is that basic things like when am i supposed to start as a conductor how do i yes what, what, what cues have i got what th this is a really something i didn't know about at all and of course i felt very stupid um the way they count they have counts so that when they're rehearsing in the studio, they might have a, a, a place where they, they do the, the six sevens or the, or, the, or the three eights or something, you know. Yes. Where, and, and you have to know what that means. And the counting has nothing to do with the beats in the bar or no. the phrase. It is purely that their steps, that thing, one, two, five and six and seven, eight, nine and ten, you know. Yeah. And, and, and they're calling this out all the time, you know, to, to, to get themselves to sort of get it all right. That's just another world. And I, I never sort of entirely you know, fully got to grips with that. And I suppose the last thing, which is perhaps the most important, is that the sad fact is that you are a jukebox. Yes. Um, you simply can't escape from the fact that, um, okay, you may be multicast, you may have three sets of, of, uh, of principal dancers or principal pairs or whatever for, for one, one ballet um, or for, for different ones on a triple bill night or something like that, so that they can, you know, you can manage multiple performances. But... Um, and they may do things at slightly different tempi, which is quite complicated. But but just the fact that you know you have to try and hit it on the nail. I mean, I did quite often actually have a, a little little desk little thing on the side of my desk for a metronome, yeah. and I quite often took in a silent little box that would tell me whether I was spot on what we'd agreed or not. Yeah. Occasionally, that was really important to do for my own sanity, um, because the, you know you do something slightly too slow or slightly too fast, or you'd miss on miss a, a, a jump or a leap or something. And, and they, they would mistime something and blame it on you. And they would say, oh, you were twice too fast or twice too slow, which was ludicrous. Of course, rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, and it might just have been just they were having a bad night or, or, yeah. or you know, whatever. But, um, yes, it was yeah the joke of course you'd go in before each show and say you know how would you like it tonight too fast or too slow because <laughs> those are the two choices really. but yeah. but yes it is a little bit soul destroying i have to say i i i didn't get a lot of musical satisfaction out of it um uh but yes as i said the, the balanchine things were were extraordinary uh, and i did a modern ballet we did a extraordinary version of, of uh, the whole of don giovanni or most of it um which was choreographed by well, the music written by Rob Zaudam, a Dutch composer. Right. And that morphed a lot of the original Mozart music, but into something very strange. Oh, that right. was because I was involved from the very start, the inception of that. So, so I, I, I related to it much more because I didn't been involved in, in the very beginnings, but I did find ballet difficult. There's one question that I've asked every conductor. Uh, you don't have to do this anymore because you don't have to mark up any scores unless, <laughs> unless you do it as a, as a hobby. I don't think you do. I, I think I know what some of your hobbies are. But it, when you had to learn a new score, what was your system? Did you use a piano? Um, did you start at the beginning and work your way through? And 
because I've asked everybody else, and I'm always fascinated to know how everybody does it. Were you a scribbler in of things, uh, coloured pens and pencils, highlighters, uh, or were you <laughs> one of these geniuses who literally preferred the the blank page? Uh, <laughs> how did you go about it, Roy? Well, I would generally, in an ideal situation, I would generally at least a year in advance. I would immerse myself in a lot of recordings. I'd listen, mm. listen to the listen to the piece, and I'd listen. It's great listening, you know, in the car or in the kitchen or whatever it is. Not not necessarily serious listening because I often hear more things when I'm not actually concentrating with a score in front of me. Yes, is, you know, because I really am listening more acutely, and when I'm score reading, I, I tend to be actually reading the score. And, mm. and, but yes, I was a massive um, scribbler. Uh, I confess, nobody <laughs> taught me how to do it. I mean, it was. Not, I, I mean, I, obviously, I've seen um, the other people's scores occasionally, and seen their blue, you know, crayon and stuff, and 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 blue and black crayon, or whatever it might be. But I did develop a system early on because I decided. Well, first of all, I used to mark up. I used to bow the parts, of course. So I used to lots of yes. part marking in the orchestra. I was not a believer that you could show everything. Well, you can't show whether you want an up bow or down bow with your baton. Um, but 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 I thought it was just a bit far fetched that you should be able to you know explain everything from your right wrist or whatever. Um, uh, so I used to bow all the parts, and I had bow, bow for the complete symphonic stuff. You know, from from yeah. handle. Handelbach to uh, to Dvorak probably I had sets of, of a lot of the symphonies and everything of, of mine which was great and that saved uh, so, you know some of the headaches and, and time time wasting in advance. but in my own scores um, I would the first thing would be and I'm sure this is this is the case for most people uh, the ones I've heard 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 discuss this with but um, I would have to divide the, the, the score up into the, the phrase lengths and everything else. Yes. Yeah. And it was very much to do with harmony and but really the harmonic rhythm, if you like, but but where the strengths were. I mean, okay, there were there were some some composers just wrote four bar phrases the whole way through. Um, <laughs> but it's wonderful when you have someone like Haydn who is always doing threes and twos and fives, yes. you know, different phrase lengths, and you wonder why it's so interesting. And that's you suddenly realize that you've hit hit the hit the nail on the head, you know, this is what it is. I did find colored highlighter pens uh, mm. very very useful and i use them liberally uh, really a lot i mean my scores are covered in highlighter pen uh, which I, I just diligently did day after day you know i just it was a, just yeah. a way of um i used to be a bit embarrassed about it and then i was very proud of it because i thought well it's, it's it works for me and um, so colors um i had yellow which was for the most common thing and that's dynamics yeah. So dynamics went in yellow and there was masses and masses and masses of yellow. So I could never miss a dynamic. And I realized that if there were anomalies and something hadn't been printed in the score or something, I would notice it because it wasn't in yellow. So yeah. color, yellow was for dynamics. Then I had a kind of ready pink color, which was for, for instructions and basically instructions either for me or for the players. So something like Colenio, um, you know, would, would be would, an instruction and that would be in red. And, and so I would know, yes, you've got to do something here yes. you know, like this green highlighter was for speed anything to do with speed blue i didn't use that often but only in call work so core if i had a, a, the text of a call work would be in blue but the one of the most important things was pentel red pens i've got a pentel pen here in my hand which is kind of felt tip but it doesn't go through the page it took me yes. years to find a, a felt tippy kind of thing that does not go through a, a, you know a, a reason a good quality page of music you know, <laughs> I've, got I've got one as well uh, exactly yeah 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 um, so i do my four bar phrases or you know of course you'd hope it'd be a three bar phrase and a two bar phrase and everything else i wouldn't allow i mean i don't think i even allowed six bar phrases so i would i would be quite liberal i i would subdivide it into twos and threes by hook or crook somehow mm. um now of course i used i mean also a, 
two B pencils and and you know I'd need a ruler and, and my my pencil sharpener everything else eraser uh, but but um, I was quite happy after thought I'd, I would do things in pencil first sometimes but very often when I was absolutely clear definitely it's you know hundred percent this is what it is this is my way of doing this yeah. it's that you know and so go in ink very confident I'd tip exit out if I was really desperate um, but that happened very rarely um, they helped me enormously and actually it was a real yes um, somehow everything would be you know come to light and be in my face with with my markings because I knew I'd covered the ground I'd, mm. I'd, I'd, I'd been there I'd, I'd done it all and, and worked it out and it was really satisfying because you, you on route you would solve so many problems and also you'd notice misprints and that kind of thing in the score I mean, for goodness sake we have we have those too but um it would really generate your performance yeah in, yeah. in, a, in a way that i need very much so yeah the, the scribbling the score i'm not not apologizing for it, it, was, it was a good, <laughs> good well you're talking to another scribbler um and whatever we do to make that score go into our heads and then out through our arms and face and whatever else helps um and so yeah perfect i you know uh never be ashamed of using anything I would i'm say. glad to hear it that's great <laughs> <laughs> at this point I asked Roy why he decided to retire from the conducting world and if there was anything he would tell the young Roy Goodman if he could chat with him now. If you want to hear that short discussion, I've turned it into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. On my Patreon page, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions and much more. You can hear over 20 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can listen to 20 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. You can read articles I've written on programming, score marking, and a brand new series I'm starting soon on string playing. And you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities worldwide, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Roy Goodman. Roy, as you will know, as somebody who's listened to a few episodes, you've already freely <laughs> admitted it. Um, you'll know what's coming now. It's the 10 questions. And you'll know that I will start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Right. Love. Um as you know, I, I was an, an organist, or I still play the organ a lot. In fact, the organ is one of my hobbies, you know, one of the yeah. things I really like doing. And I've got a, a, a sort of digitally sampled instrument, a three-manual extensive instrument. And just the basic eight-foot open diapason stop on an organ really, really just is complete. It makes me feel totally <laughs> at peace with the world and everything else and just playing some simple chords as well obviously i've got various yeah. different instruments which have various different eight foot open diapasons and i have you know the, my favorite ones and my less favorite ones but there there is one i'm thinking of in particular right now uh, which is just so pure and a wonderful when you can hear the hear the 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 palate or whatever opening and 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 the wind you know entering the pipe and, it, and the way it's the, the 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 note starts everything else. It's so wonderful. So yes, it would be an open eight foot diapason sound on an organ. And the sound you particularly dislike? Oh right, okay. Um, this is. <laughs> I'm afraid my Sundays get ruined every week because um, there are two theme tunes. 
which I can't bear. <laughs> and I have to just get to my radio to push the off button because I just find it, I, I promise it, it's anathema to me. I just hate yeah. it Re with a you know, violence. Yeah. And for some reason, it happens almost every single Sunday because I forget. <laughs> Basically, I enjoy um, on a Sunday morning uh, at nine o'clock, there's a, there's a program on Radio 4, um, which is called Broadcasting House, or BH, with Paddy O'Connell, and there are other presenters, of course, as well. And I love it. I mean, it's just an hour of, around about the news, if you know what I mean, but it's not, yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not the news in the, in the normal in, you know, news information kind of program. It's just a bit more light, light, not light, light-hearted, but, you know, around about the per periphery of things. But yes. I find it because it's things that I perhaps don't hear on nothing. And I, I get so involved with it that when it comes to an end at 10 o'clock, I am I'm unaware, you know, that what's just coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunately, it's the archers. Um, and I have never ever got involved in listening to the archers. Um, I, I, it's been such a long running and such a popular program. But that comes on at 10 o'clock and the omnibus, which is on a Sunday. So this yeah. is particularly has a different a different orchestration, if you like, of the theme. Okay. So this, this um, what's it called? It's called Barwick uh, Green. It's called Barwick Green. That's yes. right. Well, I think they changed it. I don't know, ten years ago or something like that. But and a group called Bellowhead play, play this, play this um, the, the lovely <laughs> tune. But the orchestration of it, the sound—I don't know—it sounds to me like I don't know piano accordions or, or bagpipes or something. But yeah. it drives me insane. And as soon as the first thing starts, I have to smash the off button and get the radio on. <laughs> And turn over because I at ten o'clock. What I should have done is turn from Radio Four to Radio Three because I like uh, it. Sarah Walker has a lovely program called Sunday Morning, which actually starts when the, that newsy program starts at nine And I, I just slip into that at ten o'clock. And and I every week I think how how why did I not change the channel? I'm just well, it should do it automatically. It should be a, a way of doing it. Um, and unfortunately, the same thing happens at the end of her end of that program. So her, her program ends, ends at midday, <laughs> and on comes another program called Private Passions um, on on Radio Three, which I've just never somehow got into. I don't know why. It, it's got a bit of Michael Barclay. He, it's his program, and it's got a bit of music of his as the as the theme tune, which again I just don't find very pleasant. And I I've sometimes have found his program rather patronising. So I, I I haven't been a, a I haven't really got enjoyment out of that. So it's, it's the changes between those programmes on a Sunday morning that, I, that, that actually are a real hate thing for me. And I, there's not very much in this world that I hate, but I just have to jump to the radio and turn it off. <laughs> if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? My favourite thing is climbing a mountain. It's Helvellyn in the Lake District, which um, I first climbed when I was probably about four or five or something as a kid. And I've climbed many, many times since. So to have 24 hours uh, climbing up to the Tarn and uh, across Striding Edge and then Swirl Edge to come down of Helvellyn and seeing the views of Ullswater and everything below, it's just breathtaking. So that'd be my favourite 24 hours. Can you name your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? I'll give you three. Go I'll on, tell, tell them straight off. So uh, Toscanini would be one. Yes. Uh, Carlos Kleiber would be another, and Nicolas Harnoncourt would be the third. And I think all three of them in my, my life, the way, you know, my listening habits and everything, they've greatly influenced me. Mm. Uh, Toscanini, I found amazing. I've got his complete RCA recordings in a big box. And uh, it's astonishing 
tempo is such an important thing. Drive, yeah. Con- yeah. Yeah, drive for a conductor. And he seems to hit the right tempo for so many, so much of the mainstream repertoire. Mm. And wonderful clarity of articulation and everything else. I, I just found his recordings as a whole just incredibly exciting. Carlos Kleiber, deep thinker, just an extraordinary man. Maybe we can't hear him in so much repertoire because he didn't sort of make so many studio recordings and all that kind of stuff, which is Sarah. But um, uh, I remember two things particularly, and, and one is uh, his performances of Der Freischutz, mm. one of his, his calling cards, and just seeing him in the pit, I, that, that is just belief and, and passion and everything to, to, to the nth degree. I mean, just, just absolutely astonishing commitment. And and when he's rehearsing, I mean, there's some lovely rehearsal tapes, you know, him trying mm. to, a bit like I was with my hip stuff, and um, him trying to get the players to play his language, you know, and what part of this don't you understand? You know, you'd always say something <laughs> like that to the Vienna Phil, you know, yes. which, which is amazing. And then, of course, there are those very sad films about his later years and, again, his frustration. I guess he, I think he seriously lived through a lot of the kind of frustration that I've experienced myself. And I really feel for him. I mean, you uh, know, because um, at, at least I'm still happy and living to tell the tale. But but I, I had a very, you know, soft spot for well, very important thing for feelings about him. Um, Harnkor, massively important. Uh, 1970, this this um, uh, Matthew Passion, uh, absolutely changing the world. And throughout his life, he was a trailblazer. I mean, just mm. astonishing. And you, the, the, the most important thing for me about him is you cannot ignore him. Nobody should ignore him because he always has something very important to say. You can agree or disagree. You can do that with anybody. But Hanukkah is, I think, unique in this respect, that you really should not, at your peril, ignore what he has to say and how he tries to do things. And generally speaking, you will also, therefore, learn from the things that you do disagree with, because mm. you'll then have a good reason for it, because he's presented his case very well. So that, that's, that's those, those three. Terrific. Well... Two of your three, I chose as my two in episode 50. No. <laughs> so, yeah, Kleiber and Harnancourt. So let's oh, find... Yes, exactly. Um, let's find out uh, whether your favourite current conductors also agree with me. Well, OK, I'll give you all three straight away, just so that that, that clears the decks. Um, the first would be Yannick Nézé-Séguin. Yes. Um, and second would be Susanna Melki. Yeah. And the third would be François Xavier Rote. Oh, I'll now, give you my reasons, really. Yannick, um, when I was conducting for many years the Manitoba Chamber Orchestra of Winnipeg, uh, who were all members of the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, we used to have guests. So I was only out there for, I don't know, eight, eight concerts a year or something like that. But we had a couple of guests, two or three each year. He was invited by popular demand when he was very young. Um, mm. And uh, being a local lad, you know, as it were, can- Canadian, it's a small country. <laughs> and yeah. um, I know my players really loved him being a, a visitor. So I then suggested after a year or two, I said, look, you know, if you like him so much, why don't you book him for every year, you know, for yeah. one or two concerts or whatever, which they did. And uh, that's all in the past. But I was just astonished then he, he, at, at the, his progress yeah. and listening to his recordings. He, he worked with a very difficult orchestra in Holland, which I conducted quite a lot, uh, which is the Rotterdam Philharmonic. I mean, they're a very wonderful and powerful orchestra. They had Gergiev, of course, for quite yes. some time. So they've had some quite hard taskmasters. Yannick got them to play sweetly and beautifully. And, and I think he put a real motivation back to, to get the best out of the music with them. So mm. I'm very impressed. And to see, you know, he's at the Met and so on yeah. and so forth. 
He has made complete recordings of all of the Mendelssohn and Schumann symphonies for Deutsche Grammophon, and they're lovely. Yeah. So you know that's mainstream stuff, and 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 he's up there. He's up there with Harnenbrock. Yeah. You know, it, 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 which is terrific. Um, Susanna Melki, I only was listening to a recording of hers with the Helsinki Philharmonic very recently and realized that she's been with them recording the complete works of Bartok. I was listening to the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, which I played in the National Youth Orchestra and know it very well. And I was, my breath was taken away. I thought it was just fantastic. And she's recording all of the Bartok works and much more besides. And right. she is just one example of about 40 or so female conductors who I've latched onto in the last, actually the last year, I started yes. making a list and it is breathtakingly wonderful. It's a breath of fresh air yeah. to realize we've got over this hump now that you actually shouldn't have to say female conductor. I mean, yeah, obviously no. they are just a conductor, but they, they have to be female and there have been very few of them in the past. So thank heavens there are now such a high number of high quality ones to choose from, which is great. And I use her as an example. And Francois Xavier wrote, it's very simple, um, he fo he follows my hit example, and and he's taken it to the nth degree with the repertoire. You know, I was yes. saying how we progressed through the repertoire. You know, I got as far as Dvorak and stuff, and actually I did get as far as Elgar in certain circumstances. But but you know, here we have the Rite of Spring at the Proms and stuff, and now lots of Debussy and 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 particularly sort of French repertoire and so on, played on period instruments. You know, of the time. But my God, it's good. Mm. I think I heard Ravel recently. I mean. It's 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 just wonderful, and it justifies all the reasons why we all joined this club of trying to you know use period instruments and use historically informed performance, and and he's doing it. I mean, he's got an orchestra in Frankfurt, I think now, and and, and that's, so he's working with various other orchestras apart from Lacey Eckler, which is the main one which I've I've heard, and and I think he's just doing a pioneering job. Fantastic. Well, dear listener, if you don't know what Francois Xavier wrote is all about, go back a few episodes and you'll find out because I interviewed <laughs> him just a few episodes ago. Um, number six, what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Oh, God. Right. Um, well, look, oh, oh, that sounds like it's bringing back bad memories. <laughs> the reason is because, it, 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 you know, you could... Conducting is a tough job. I yes. mean, I actually love accompanying, but like many conductors, I've often struggled even with a few famous concertos. Yeah. A possible candidates could have been Chopin first piano concerto, Glasnov violin concerto, two pieces very dear to my heart. Those weren't problems for me because I've knew, known them all of my life and, yes. and, uh, and so on. So that, that was not difficult. But I have had times with works like the Sibelius violin concerto, the Elgar violin concerto, which I think are difficult. Yeah, I remember yeah. conducting the um, uh, rehearsal, this was, of, of conducting the Ravel G major piano concerto with Peter Donahoe in Liverpool with the RLPO. <laughs> and in the rehearsal, he suddenly stood up in the middle of something obviously wasn't together. And that's obviously yeah. one of the difficulties you have as a conductor. And he said, why is it that people think they are being musical when they take time. <laughs> and of course, that's a very Peter very, thing to say. There was, there was very awkward silence. In fact, yeah. I was puzzled at what, he, what might have prompted such an outburst. What, you know, was it aimed at me or yeah. possibly a specific wind player? It certainly wasn't the famous whip that starts things off. No. But, but um, it, um, I, I never find out. We had a very nice curry after the concert and, and had a nice chat. So it obviously wasn't anything personal. But, but I, I thought about it quite a lot afterwards. And, and of course, he's right. We, we should be able to make rubato organically without seriously disturbing the, the metrical yes. flow of the music. And I think that's really what he was on about. But 
if I had to say in one word, uh, the most difficult piece I've ever had to conduct, it was the 1957 ballet by Stravinsky, Argon, A-G-O-N, which I conducted yes. multiple times in 2004. Uniquely, it's a ballet without any plot or story. So you've got no poetry. <laughs> right. It's a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah. Argon is simply the Greek word for a contest. So we have 12 dancers in various groupings. So they're in pairs, trios, quartets, etc. And unusually, it's a, a score largely using Schoenberg's 12-tone technique. Oh, okay. It's not something I've worked on very much. Um, it's scored for a very large orchestra. It's got triple woodwinds, quadruple brass, harp, piano, mandolin, percussion, and strings. It only lasts 22 minutes, but it has 16 <laughs> movements. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Each section is scored for different combinations of instruments, and at no point does the entire orchestra ever play a tootsie. So it's difficult to rehearse because it's just yeah. bitty and the movements are so short. Each section is scored for different combinations of instruments, yet there's a lot of minimalist scoring, which can be very difficult for the ballet dancers to hear on stage. And there is one very deceptive movement. So just bear with me. This is actually yeah. what I find almost impossible. It's the 10th section. It's called A Brawl Gay, and it's just for one female dancer. In Stravinsky's own recording, it lasts just 54 seconds. But for <laughs> me, <laughs> it was a sheer minute of horror. It was yeah. just all Basically, it has a very simple ostinato for the castanets. It's just two semiquavers and two quavers. So, ba, 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 ba. Yeah. And that's played 24 times. But unfortunately, during those 24 times, there are also 12 changes of time signature. Right. <laughs> they vary from 3 8 to 7 16 and 5 16. Oh my God. No, no, no. And at no. least the, the quaver pulse is only 92. So, it's not very fast. No. And my only solution, the only way I could get my head around it, because when I'd first listened to the piece, it sounded just deceptively childlike and simple. Yeah. And it's absolutely the opposite. The only way I could get my head around it or to, to get it worked out was I had to silently count rhythmic semiquavers. Yes. So, but, 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 about that speed in my head in appropriate multiples of twos and threes and giving to the orchestra either two or three beats in every bar yeah, with yeah. the castanets ignoring me. In other words, once, because the castanets play their, their four note, four clicks, um, alone, solo. The first bar is just but, 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 but on the castanets. And so once he'd done that, I said, look, you just carry on. Don't look at me. Don't, don't think about it. Yeah. I just dealt with my problem with, with giving what the beats were. Because the, the, the overhang was often, sorry, the, the overlap between the ostinato and the bar lines was very often one semiquaver. Right. So the three eight that it was in, of course, you got six semiquavers, yes. and the two the two time signatures you're alternating with are five sixteen and seven sixteen. So there's always <laughs> going to be either one too many or one too little yeah. semiquaver, and so it, nothing fits at all. I mean, it's just it really is ludicrous. I, I don't know. Anyway, somehow, as if by magic, it worked every night. And lucky me, I got a rave review from the top uh, Netherlands critic of the day. I remember the the, the, the headline was good Goodman. Oakstärk als ballet ballet dirigent, which means Goodman also strong as a ballet conductor. I'm also <laughs> strong and good, so that's cool. And that that's was even good. when I was compared with a recent concert performance, not a stage one, which Valerie Gergiev had given with the Rotterdam Phil. So all I can say is I'm very glad that's over now. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? 
obviously I took all my colored pens and all that stuff. That's a given because yeah. I, I couldn't work and progress without this. But there was one little thing, a little talisman that I always took with me, which was a small classic Steiff teddy bear. Um, oh, German, lovely. Made in Germany, I think. So yeah. it was a gift from my second wife about the size of my palm. And so it would fit into my pencil case. And he, sorry, Ted, <laughs> would fit yeah. into my pencil case. Very polite. And uh, as he's not, he's no longer with me now, but for about 30 odd years, he was the one thing I couldn't possibly leave home without. He was my, my lucky charm, if you know what I mean. And he, he just made sure I was okay and everything was all right. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think the relationships you have, especially if you're an independent um, freelance conductor, uh, you know, in other words, guesting a lot, uh, there are complications with your life. Um, and and, and um, yeah, I mean, okay travel is the first so you have to be a good good travel agent work at work at working out all of that i have to say the traveling can be sometimes too stressful and i can understand a lot of people just find the traveling too much and that's one of the things that they really do dislike about it it's hard to be a prophet in your own country so i didn't do much work in england you know it was, mm -hmm. most of it was abroad so i think that's the way with a lot of people is that you 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 have to go abroad to do a lot of work but relationship with agents and with artistic managers and also keeping especially in america but i found the same in new zealand and other countries keeping sponsors happy yeah, yeah. Um, the kind of small talk you have to do to keep the, the finance is coming in <laughs> which pays your salary of course pays for everything um, so you have you have to happily accept that kind of thing but um an agent would have been very helpful as a buffer for me between me and the orchestra management you know it's it's not fun discussing money or fees or conditions or you know hotels or whatever it is i mean there's there's so much rubbish that can get in the way which is better if it doesn't get in the way if there's somebody else to buffer that for you which an agent yes. would do. i didn't benefit from that and the other was your relationship with artistic managers I mean, the role, how important the conductor is varies from every outfit, you know, to, to every other, other orchestra. Um, and uh, very often I, I, I had to, as it were, subjugate or, you know, submit, as it were, to, to an artistic manager who would ultimately decide on the, the programme mix. And sometimes it was devastatingly awful. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, those kind of relationships um, are so important. I, I can think of about two artistic managers who who I was fortunate enough to, to have for a couple, two or three years each, who transformed my life. I mean, it was just wonderful because we saw eye to eye on everything. And it was a, we, it was a melting pot. We'd all we'd throw our ideas together and then come to a mutually wonderful compromise, you know, uh, for it all, which is how it should be. That was all too rare. And so I, I very much regret that. Um, and um, the other thing would be for, for, yes, with the management things, I was thinking, I'm trying to think of the, how much vote or clout, as it were, the conductor has over auditions when you have orchestral auditions so in holland you know i was on on the panel for 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 all of the auditions i had to turn up you know for them, which is great because i wanted to but there were also you know orchestral players um, who you know they had an equivalent vote and we had one vote each and that's how it was which generally i mean yeah i never got my first choice i mean i i never got my first oboe or even assistant concertmaster or you know principal double bass or whatever it's going to be particularly first oboe and leader i mean incredibly important positions and yes. i thought it was a little bit crazy that even if i put my case across um i still lost because of the way the ballots were done you know and and i found that very very frustrating it meant i couldn't progress the orchestra in the way that that, that i wanted to so those relationships with agents artistic managers sponsors and programming people and what have you um, are things that I would have, now I know how important they are and would have worked hard to, to have better relationships. 
What profession other than your own would you like to attempt or would have liked to have attempted earlier in life? Well, I'll give you two little things here. Um, one, which other people may have said, is I would have been interested in being a pilot. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, it'd been completely impractical. I mean, to keep up all the hours and the cost yeah. of it all it would have been ludicrous. But I would have liked to have been able to fly a plane. But um, the, the, my most serious answer would be I would have loved to have been a proper jazz pianist. Ah. Um, I, I've always dabbled in different species, as it were, of, of, of keyboard music from harpsichord to piano to you know organ and everything else, and loved it very much. I, I grew up in the days of the Dudley Moore uh, piano quint, piano trio, really, um, and was a massive Oscar Peterson fan. I thought he was just amazing. I mean, his solo playing, Art Tatum, of course, you know, another yeah. one. But 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 the the Dudley Moore piano trio was exactly. I used to transcribe some of their um, the things he he played, note for note, you know, just mm. by ear. And and I, occasionally I could get a bass player or even uh, record a bass line myself and then play the two hands, you know, the, the, the piano part on me. And I got such pleasure out of that. The thing is, I can't do it off the cuff and naturally and everything else. I've tried, you know, occasionally I've tried to busk with a jazz player or jazz bass player um, and, and have some fun. I just adore it. I feel very frustrated and I don't think it's quite going to come, but I, I, I do enjoy dabbling and I just wish that I actually had <laughs> been able to be professional at it. <laughs> If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Oh, well, well, if I take you at your word, it's like the world's going to end, then I don't have to stick to my regime at the moment. So, No, um, I, no dietary requirements at no all. You can have whatever well, you like. Fantastic, because I, I, I do these days eat very little red meat and I haven't been drinking alcohol for about two years. So uh, that, that those would be completely off limits if, if, if there wasn't going to be an end to my world. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, pretty straightforward, I guess. I would like to be served a really delicious meal with, with wines and stuff. So it would go like this. I'd like garlic scallops. Oh, um, nice. I've had them in a lovely, uh, the Galleon Inn in Foy, uh, where I have sailed my boat quite a lot, and they do them beautifully there. So garlic scallops with um, I think a nice Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, a nice uh, New Zealand white wine. Very apparently, nice. I only discovered it when I was conducting in New Zealand uh, quite a lot of years ago, but it's apparently very common out there, but I'd never heard of it and I thought it was the most amazing white wine I'd ever had. Um, main course, I would have a rack of Welsh lamb. Mm. Um, I do love lamb, you know, slow cooked lamb or whatever, but anyway, a nice rack of lamb with roasted vegetables. And that will be, I think, very nicely accompanied by a Chateau Petrus 1970. I got married in 1970. In fact, you were born in 1970. Yes, that's uh, right, I was, yeah. There was a, 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 a sort of Bible wine book uh, I remember reading once by a, a man, his surname was Broadbent. Um, and he said that the 1970 Petrus was the world's most massively rich red, red wine. And I'd just like to put him to the test and find out whether he was right. I did actually have a bottle. Yeah. Um, I collected some wines when I, because I got married in 1970, I collected a dozen, you know, a mixed dozen yeah. bottles, which I actually never drank. I did sell them. And I, but I bought the Petrus for £30. And I sold it for £300. So, I mean, I, I did do quite well after that. But, <laughs> but anyway, so that's the Shadow Petrus. Um, and for dessert, it would be a lemon syllabub. Um, with Calvados. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. Well, uh, syllabub is a, is, a, is a, it was a sweet that apparently was popular in England in the mid 16th century. Um, it's a kind of curdled sweet cream yeah. inside. So it's got an apple, apple overtones and everything else. And it just happened that I had it uh, on my honeymoon when I was first married in 1970. 
Um, we went to the Black Swan in Helmsley. We just had literally a sort of long weekend. That's all we could afford in those days. I was a humble teacher. Um, but uh, Cinnabub was on the minute, and I remember we couldn't stop giggling because it was such a funny name. Um, but I, but I've realised that would have been special. So uh, we've got scallops, roast lamb, and Cinnabub. That would be my meal. <laughs> well, and, and the brilliant choice of drinks to go along with it, and a brilliant <laughs> two hours it's been, pretty much chatting to you, Roy. I've had a wonderful time, and um, I hope very soon that uh, well, we could we could talk even more about 1970. It seems to crop up. At- <laughs> about every 20 minutes so great yeah but thank you for coming on the podcast it's been a great pleasure i've loved listening to some of the other programs so keep up the good work a mic on the podium was devised and produced by michael seal with music by ben dawson next time i chat with a finnish conductor who also started his musical life as a violinist but after studying conducting with both jorma panela and leif sagerstam he's gone on to have a truly international career holding title positions in Japan, Germany, South Korea and New Zealand. But until then, bye-bye.